Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those hymns, you know, trust and obey. Help us, Lord, as we come to your word to open our hearts so that we can trust, that we can know the joy of obeying you. And so with anticipation, Lord, we come to your word that your spirit may open it up to us through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we continue our journey through the book of 1 Peter, the letter that Peter wrote. Now often in the Bible we are told to fear the Lord. In fact, the book of Peter, or the book of Proverbs, I should say, starts with that, doesn't it? Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we sing Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his command. So a number of times the Bible encourages us, commands us to fear the Lord. But isn't this all a contradiction? Because more often the Bible tells us that God loves us and we are to love him. So how can we fear the Lord and love him at the same time? In fact, not only that, but 1 John 4 tells us this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So what's the fear of the Lord all about? Well, this morning as we dig into our passage in 1 Peter, we're going to discover a number of things. And one of the things we're going to look at is how to fear the Lord in a way that is good and right. So 1 Peter, and we're up to verse 13. Before we dig in, though, a couple of things, a bit of a background. Peter's about to change track now. Up until today, he's been doing a few things, two things. He's been laying a foundation of how the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit are involved in our salvation. The second thing he's been doing is been giving hope to the readers who are going through great suffering. Now, having done that, he now turns to what preachers call exhorting. Exhorting, that's when the Bible gives a list of instructions and commands us to do them. It's the do this, don't do that passages, the turn away from this and turn towards this parts of the Bible. For though we know the joy in salvation and we know great comfort during our suffering, then this is all to lead to obedient living. If we really want to please God, then we need to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received, worthy of the one who gave us everything for us. But it's important before preachers get into exhorting the instructions that we reminded of the order in which this all happens. We notice that first of all, we experience the joy of salvation and we know the comfort in his suffering and this in turn leads to obedience. Now Peter will cycle through this pattern through this letter. He will, at Sometimes he will be talking about the joy of salvation. Then he'll move on to comforting those folk who are suffering and then he will say, now that you know this, this is what you need to do. This is how you live a life worthy. Now preachers often get this in the wrong order. Preachers often will go straight to the instructions. So we'll preach a service on love, and then we'll wave our fingers and say, you better get out there and love people. You heard those sermons? Or there'll be a sermon on giving, and then the preacher will end up and saying, increase your tithing. Again, the finger starts waving around. Or there might be a sermon on forgiveness, and then the preacher at the end will say, you better forgive or you're in trouble. And so it's very tempting for a preacher to get straight to the exhorting without the joy of salvation and the comfort that we have 
during our sufferings. You see, what's our motivation? When we come across these lists in the Bible of things to do, what's, what's our motivation? Is it out of duty? Well, we better do this. We should do that. We shouldn't do this. Is it out of, out of fear? Out of fear of judgment? Or is it out of guilt? When we thought, well, we can't let the Lord down. We better do this. Well, no. Those are not our motivations. For it's once you experience the joy of salvation, it's once you've had the comfort during your suffering that it is only natural that you want to obey your heavenly Father. Because loved children love to obey. That's true, isn't it? You know, if you've had the blessing of being in a family growing up where you were dearly loved, loved children love to obey. I'm sure your children were blessed growing up in a family that you loved them. And you know that loved children love to obey. Don't get it right all the time, but that's our motivation. So with all that in mind, let's open up our passage and have a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, therefore means all of the things that we've talked about before, the joy of your salvation, the comfort that you've received in suffering. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. So what are we to do? How are we to live lives worthy? Well, first of all, we are to align our attitude. We are to set our compass. We are to rest our hope in the grace, in the grace that we have already received and will come in all fullness when Christ returns. Now, what's grace? Well, it's one of those words that Christians like to throw around the place and we know it means something special. But what does grace mean? Grace is the undeserved an unmerited kindness that sees God's hand in our lives. Isn't that lovely? Undeserved, unmerited kindness that sees God's hand in our lives. While we were washed up and washed out, while we were good for nothing and had nothing good, God's kindness broke into our lives like a warm blanket wrapped around our arms on a cold night. God's grace broke through with the words of our Heavenly Father saying, I have loved you since before creation. You are my dearly beloved. Lay your burdens down. Find your rest in me. This is grace. And so we align our attitudes, set our compasses, and rest our hopes on this grace we have received. And how do we respond to such wonderful grace? Well, verse 14 as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So this is the turning away. Peter's going to say, well, turn away from this and turn away towards that. So what's the turning away from? Well, let's start off with the first phrase, as obedient children. And again, we're talking motivation here. As obedient children, we love to respond because we have been chosen from the beginning of time. As obedient children, we respond because Jesus is making us at one. He atones for us by his blood. We are obedient children because we cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is setting us aside to be more like Jesus. Obedient children. Love children. Love to obey. 
And in this, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved or as beloved children. It's great, isn't it? You can see this now and again, can't you? Children imitating their parents. I have a little video clip to show you. Uh, it's very short. There is no sound. So we'll just enjoy about 15 seconds of a young lad imitating his father. Oh, isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great ute? The little black ute with Flintstone, Fred Flintstone power, you know, the feet, and immaculate backing into a full-size trailer. And how many times do you think that lad's seen his dad do that? And do you see the way he turned the handle, at least gave it a go, and then fiddled for the chain? He was imitating his father. And that's what the Bible calls us to do. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see the motivation? The motivation. Not out of duty, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but because we know that we are dearly loved, then we want to back our ute just like our dad. <laughs> now, in a perfect world, this would be all the instructions that we need. Peter would write, hey, Christian, just imitate your heavenly father, and then he would sign off, love Peter, short letter. But we are far from perfect. We are a work in progress. The Holy Spirit needs something to work with. And so often the Bible has this pattern, as obedient children, imitate your father, and then it spells it out. This format is often repeated in the Bible, even it's repeated a couple of times in Peter. And so verse 14 is just one example. So as obedient children, what are we called to do? Not called to back our ute, we are called to do what? Verse 14, Continue. I'll read that again. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. This is all about turning away. We live lives worthy by turning away on our evil desires that we had in the past. Now, that we are dearly loved children does not mean that we are exempt from the human condition. You may have tasted the sweetness of inexpressible and glorious joy in knowing Jesus, but that does not rule you out from having those desires that lurk within each one of us, especially those, de those desires from our past. Now, as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, these desires become less and less and our management of them becomes better and better. Praise God. But Peter is reminding us, you may have come a long way. You may have turned your back on your past way of life, but be alert and be sober. Do not let these desires that still lurk gain a foothold. Like an alcoholic who can never taste liquor, or a gambling addict who can never sit at a poker machine, so we need to be vigilant not succumbing, not drifting towards or falling into past weaknesses. Later on, Peter writes this in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what, uh, past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised when you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Now, we're going to look at that verse more thoroughly when we come to that passage. But you see what's happening? Those evil desires in the past that Peter is warning us at the beginning, he's going into more detail here. Now, that list might not describe you before you became a Christian. 
However, we all have weaknesses from the past, inclinations, and Achilles' heel that we need to be alert and sober to, lest it gain a foothold. And so as obedient children who imitate our Heavenly Father, we turn away from those evil desires, those past things that had a grip on us, and we turn away. Now, if there was only the turning away, we would not know what to do. But there's also a turning towards, and that's what the next two verses tell us. What are we to turn towards? And we pick this up again in in verse 15, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you was holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Because God is holy, then we as children likewise desire to be holy in all we do. But let's think about this. It's a bit abstract, isn't it, the word holy? And what does it mean for us to be holy? Well, let's dig a bit deeper. Verse 15, 16, we see twice God declares that he himself is holy, and twice we are instructed to be holy. The second is a quote from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is uh, one of the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. And this book, Leviticus, deals with a big problem, a big issue that the Jewish folk had because God had instructed them to build a tabernacle and he said, I am going to dwell above the Ark of the Covenant. My presence is going to be there, the holy presence of God. However, the Israelites... Basically, we're human and therefore sinful. And the problem was, how can a holy God live in their midst amongst an unholy people and not destroy them with the glory of his presence? And so the book of Leviticus is written. And in it, five times God says, because I'm going to be living with you, be holy because I am holy. Five times. And then he gives a whole bunch of instructions. And these instructions are basically in two areas. First of all, through sacrifice, worship. Worship will be through the blood of Jesus, and there's a whole bunch of instructions to get that right. And the second thing is how to live their lives, in particular, how to be clean. So no unclean food will be eaten, like pork or crayfish, all those other things that some people find quite nice. But for the Israelites, they were not to eat unclean food because they needed to be set apart and holy. Be holy because I am holy. Now, by the grace of God, since Jesus has come as God's people, we do not have to follow those regulations. So we don't come to church and slaughter a goat. And um, we don't have a problem if there's a pork sandwich or something like that that at a a church deal. Okay, That's good news for those folk who who like those sort of foods. So the, the specific instructions have fallen away, but not the intent God's people are still called to be holy because God is holy. We just go about it in quite a different way. Because Jesus' blood covers and cleanses us, we don't need the blood of an animal. Because Jesus' blood covers and cleanses us, then we don't have to worry about unclean or clean food. However, what we must do to be holy is not conform to our past way of life, not to give in to our evil desires, especially from the past. Instead, we are to be alert and sober, refusing to let them gain 
or regain any foothold. Now, when it comes to encountering the holiness of God, Peter is just not writing theory. This is not just an abstract dissertation that he's going to present at a university level about the holiness of God. This was written to real people that needed to experience the real holiness of God. And Peter had experienced that in a deeply personal and life-changing way. Because the first time that Peter encountered Jesus, he was overcome by his holiness. And we pick this up in the gospel reading that was read earlier in Luke 5. And we're familiar with the story. Peter is a fisherman. And he owns the boat with his parents and and his brother Andrew. And there's another boat there owned by James and John. And they are partners. And they've been out all night fishing. And it's early in the morning and they're back. And Peter's cleaning and mending the nets. And then Jesus comes to the lake shore and he starts starts to teach. And no doubt Peter's listening. But as the crowds gather... Jesus approaches Peter and says, look, can, can I borrow your boat? <laughs> can you just push out a little so that I can teach? So Peter says, fine, and he gets into the boat, and they push out a little, and then Jesus teaches, and he teaches the crowd. And then, and then when he finishes, he says, to, he says to Peter, I want you to push out into deep water and throw out your nets. And this confuses Peter. And Peter responds in this way, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Many of us know what happened next. A wonderful story. Uh, verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners, that would have been James and John, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so, so full that they began to sink. Now, Peter, no doubt, had been fishing all his life, and he'd never seen anything like this. They were in the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong fishing conditions, yet this was the biggest catch he or his partners had ever seen, so full that both boats were in danger of sinking. And so, combined with the teaching that Peter had heard, he became overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus. And so we read in verse, uh, verse 8 this. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. There in the boat, Peter's eyes were opened to catch a glimpse of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus. And he is undone as a man. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. As Peter encounters something of the holiness of God, his unholiness is exposed. And so he says, get away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And that happens in the Bible. It happens today. That when we encounter the holiness of God, our unholiness becomes a stark contrast. And it is a good and right response to fall on our knees in holy awe and reverent fear. You see, Christ would be right to banish Peter from his presence. Jesus, the one before even the holy angels of heaven bow before, came, however, not to banish, but embrace. And so this holy one, Jesus, we read this in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. 
what we see here is what the Bible calls the fear of God. It's a fear that is a deep awe, an awe that stops a broken man in his tracks and causes him to worship, as Peter did here in the boat. And this is the same reverent awe that Peter now picks up in verse 17. So, as a young man, a fisherman, Peter's first encounter with Jesus was all about the holiness of Christ and the holy fear, the, the, the deep awe that he experienced. And notice in, number 17, in verse 17, back in 1 Peter, how he picks up on that, that reverent fear. Verse 17 of 1 Peter. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now there's a lot happening in this verse. In fact, so much I'm going to pick up on most of verse 17 next week. But for now, it's the phrase that ends that verse, reverent fear. And this is the same fear, the same holy awe that Peter felt in the boat when he was in the presence of Jesus. And it's the same reverent fear which we are to live out in our time here on earth. And so I'd love you to go out from today thinking, what's the fear of God? And think of Peter in the boat on his knees. And Jesus then turning to him and says, do not be afraid. That's what fear of God means. Holy fear. When we broaden out and take the big picture, though, there are two ways to fear God in the Bible. Well, because God will judge each person impartially and with no favorites, as we see in verse 17, because each one of us will be judged impartially, and because we all fall short, we are right to fear God, the God of judgment. The Bible is clear. Without the mercy of Christ, each of us will be judged, found guilty, and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is a genuine fear that every person will experience on Judgment Day unless unless this is replaced by a reverent fear, a holy awe for Jesus. A holy awe based not on judgment and destruction, but based on the beauty and the wonder and the holiness of one who gave us all. For those of us who experience the uh, glorious and inexpressible joy, of knowing our salvation. For those of us that have had comfort in our sufferings while here on this earth, that final judgment has no fear for us because Christ paid it all. Christ paid it all. So our fear, instead of fear of judgment, becomes a holy awe like Peter on his knees in that boat. Let me finish with reminding you of the three P's of salvation three P's of salvation. And I'll do them in the reverse order this time just to help pull this together. The three P's of salvation, if you, if you remember, that in the future we will be saved from the presence of sin. When Jesus comes again, his presence will banish sin and there will be no more tears, no more heartache as we get to live with our Heavenly Father forever. That's the first of the three P's. Second of the three P's is for today. Today, Every day, we are being saved from the power of sin. Those evil desires that Peter mentioned that lurk become less and less as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We are being saved day by day from the power of sin. 
But this is because that when we were saved, every Christian, every Christian was saved from the penalty of sin. When we became Christians, the punishment that Christ received on our behalf meant that we had faced no penalty. You see, this is why we can face judgment, but that is impartial and with no favourance, but have no fear, no dread, but only a holy awe because we are known that we are loved by a holy God. Because perfect love does cast out all dread, all terror, all fear. Fear of judgment, fear of Satan's power, fear of death and fear of the grave, these fears are all cast out by perfect love. And then as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, they are replaced with a reverent fear and a holy awe as we are filled with that glorious and inexpressible joy that we know by our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we think of Peter in the boat and that huge catch. And then Peter realising that he was standing before a holy one, the very Son of God. We pray, Lord, that in our walk with you, there will be times when we catch glimpses of that wonderful, wonderful holiness, that beauty of Jesus, that majesty, and that you will help us too to fall on our knees and say, get away from me, Lord, I am a sinner. Yet to hear Jesus say, do not be afraid. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. We pray that we will live lives worthy of the calling that we received and live lives worthy of the one who gave us everything for us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.